It's Friday 22nd of September and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Coming up, why artificial intelligence is set to transform the global economy. But first, I'm joined by Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing. Hi, Neil. Hi there, David. So the end of central bank tightening by the Fed, ECB and Bank of England. We had what we think is the ECB's final hike last Thursday. This past week, the Fed and BOE meetings. We took both decisions to indicate that, that they're done. And we briefed clients on all of this straight after the Bank of England decision on Thursday in one of our drop-ins, one of our, our short-form webinars. I wanted to start with a question that kept coming up. And it's about this view that we have that, that rate hikes from these banks are over and that inflation is going to come down quickly. But it's a view that, that contrasts with the kind of rhetoric we've heard from these policymakers over the past week or so. So the client's asking why, why the disconnect? What are the risks to our disinflationary view? Yeah, very good question. Of course, the Fed is still signaling one more rate hike in those dot plots this year. But uh, like you say, we don't think that's going to happen. And we think the ECB and the Bank of England have finished tightening too. Why is that? Well, partly it's because we think inflation will fall a bit further and a bit faster than central banks expect. That's partly in the case of the US because of what we're seeing in the forward-looking indicators, particularly around things like shelter but also because we think the economic backdrop is going to be weaker than central banks anticipate too. We can get into this later, but some of the survey data we've had from Europe over the past day or so, has been pretty terrible and consistent with recession. We think the US economy is going to be weaker than the Fed expects. And in particular, we see uh, a larger rise in unemployment, still a mild recession in our forecast, but a, a recession on the less and a larger increase in unemployment than the Fed. So is partly about the fact that the macro backdrop we think is going to be weaker than central banks anticipate, and that helps to, to get inflation down. The second factor is that a lot of the, the factors pushing up inflation over the past year or so we think have to do with the effects of the pandemic and the distortions caused by that, and then the war in Ukraine and the impact on energy prices, and that's washing through and will continue to wash through. And then the third thing is, I think it's important to understand what's driving the rhetoric from central banks. The last thing they're going to do, having been stuck so far behind the curve during this tightening cycle, scrambled to, to get ahead, is to then send a strong signal to markets that not only are they done, they're countenancing loosening policy. So I think it was always likely that we were going to either get dovish hikes or hawkish holds, whatever you want to call it, but we're never going to get the kind of the dovish pause that, that, that some seem to have expected, because that's just not how monetary policy cycles work the top central banks are still going to be sending signals to to markets that that they they remain vigilant and they remain cautious and they're going to go on top of inflation that's just how the cycle works so put all that together i think that explains why we're pretty confident that inflation is going to come down a bit faster than the central banks expect but also that that interest rates will come down a bit more quickly than the markets are anticipating too i want to pick you up on on what you were just saying about signaling to markets, because that's really important, isn't it? But first, I just want to highlight one specific risk that, that, that a client was asking about. You mentioned energy prices coming off and, and, and the disinflationary impact of that, but, but oil prices were singled out by, by the client in this briefing. I know Brent's come off a bit this week, but we're still comfortably above $90 a barrel. Those supply constraints that our commodities team have written extensively about, they haven't gone away. 
I know we've discussed energy prices before on this podcast, but the client was asking specifically about the risks to inflation expectations, about them becoming unanchored as as as, as oil rises or oil stays at, at high levels. Talk a bit about that risk and how that could upset the disinflationary story. I think the key point to bear in mind when you think about inflation expectations is that by and large, expectations tend to track what's happening to actual inflation. Now, in the case of oil prices and, and what that means for energy inflation, we're going to move from a situation where energy inflation has been a substantial drag on headline inflation to one where over the, the coming months and the rest of this year, it's going to still be a drag, but slightly more modest drag. And then by the time that we get to the kind of first quarter of next year, actually energy inflation is likely to turn positive again. Not not massively positive, but positive nonetheless. So the drag from energy inflation is easing and it's going to make a positive contribution to, to headline inflation from the start of next year. Now, insofar as that means anything for inflation expectations, what really matters is how does that play into all the other forces affecting inflation? And I, th- I think the answer is that the inflationary impulse from energy is likely to be more than offset by disinflationary forces coming from elsewhere. We know that shelter inflation in the US is likely to fall back quite sharply. Food inflation is coming down and will continue to come down in all advanced economies. Uh, goods inflation looks like it's going to come down a bit further too. And services inflation looks to us like it's peaked and will, will come down as well. So yes, all other things being equal, if the economy was running extremely hot, labour markets were extremely tight and tightening then I think a big energy shock would would risk unanchoring inflation expectations. But in, against the macro backdrop that we're anticipating and can see unfolding, I don't think it's a big risk at this stage. Let's stay on that macro backdrop because obviously the other question that kept coming up was specifically about recession risk. I know you've just talked about, about where we think that, that these economies are heading. But in the US, for example, talk for a few weeks now, has been about this idea of immaculate disinflation. I know you spent some time explaining what a path to a soft landing could look like, but we're not convinced that that's where we're heading with with the US and with rates where they are now. I mean, remind us of where we we think we're going for the US, UK, and Europe in terms of economic growth. Yes. Yeah, so I think the, the the answer is that we have recessions, albeit mild recessions, in our forecasts. Now, in some senses, you might say that does qualify as a soft landing, given the extreme distortions that we have seen in in the real economy over the past couple of years, the big shock from the pandemic, and then the associated run-up in, in inflation to get away with a only a mild recession when we've seen such an aggressive tightening of monetary policy. I think you know, in some senses, you could see that as a win for central banks. Nonetheless, the narrative in markets, as you say, has been much, has shifted over the past couple of weeks or so towards soft landings, no recessions, particularly in the US. But I think that's starting to jar a bit with some of the incoming data. Now, the PMIs in the US have perhaps less of a relationship with GDP, but in Europe and in the UK, there's a pretty strong relationship. And the flash PMIs that we've had for September are pretty awful. On the face of it, they point to pretty big contraction in UK GDP in the, the third quarter of this year and a similar size contraction, perhaps 0.2, percent uh, in, in the Eurozone too. So the, I think the irony is that in the markets, the narrative shifting towards, we can believe in a soft landing and, and central banks have pulled this off while some of the survey data is starting to flash red and saying actually Q3 looks like it's shaping up to be pretty weak in, in Europe and maybe a recession 
perhaps has even started. This whole market reaction is interesting, isn't it? We've had this sell-off in US Treasuries this week, the 10-year touching 4.5%, much less reaction in Europe. What does this say about the respective outlooks? And, and how does this feed back to your idea earlier about how central banks communicate their policy intentions with markets at this tricky stage of, of the cycle? Well, I think one of the points it shows is the markets are buying what the Fed's selling. The markets have fully bought into the idea that we're higher for longer in the US. And when you look at the sell-off in bonds in the US, government bonds in the US over the past week or so, it's been across the curve, but it's been particularly at the, the long end. And it's been uh, mainly about real yields going up rather than inflation compensation. In other words, markets don't necessarily believe that inflation is going to be higher for longer, but they think that real interest rates are going to have to be higher for longer to get on top of inflation. That's basically the narrative that the Fed was trying to, to sell at, uh, at the past week's FOMC meeting. So I think the markets have uh, started to buy into to the higher for longer narrative. What's interesting is that that hasn't spilt over into, into bond markets elsewhere. In particular, for the past year or so, it's tends to be the case that bond markets in Europe, uh, both in the Eurozone and in the UK, have typically taken their lead from what's happening in, in the US. This time around, that's not happened. The sell-off in US government bonds has not been replicated in, in Europe. That, that's partly because whereas the Fed has been pushing higher for longer, the Bank of England uh, surprised us by not hiking this week. Uh, so that sends obviously a slightly dovish signal to the, to the bond markets. But also, as we've just discussed, the data from Europe have been pretty horrific over the past week or so and suggest economies are recessions. And, and that's given some support to the bond markets. And when we look forward, my sense is that yields in the US are more likely to, to fall over the next three to six months or so, then the rise substantially further from here. You put together the economic outlook that's weakening, and you put together the fact that inflation is probably going to fall a bit further and faster than the Fed and the markets anticipate. I think all of that should give a bit of support to the, to the bond market. So we, it's been a pretty rough ride in bond markets in the US over the past week or so, but I suspect big move over the next six months or so will be yields down. Let's go back to that client briefing that we had after the Bank of England and and pick up on just, just one more question there. The client asking about expected range for US, UK, European interest rates over over the next decade or so, what our base case scenario is for the for the longer term interest rate outlook once the dust here has settled. Yeah, this comes back to the concept of equilibrium real interest rates, which is always a kind of slightly difficult concept, I think, because it implies that economies are in, in equilibrium and we know that they're not. They're they're fluid, fluid systems and very often they're not in equilibrium. But I think we can take the kind of concept of real equilibrium rates as meaning where are rates likely to kind of head over the, the medium term. We're about to publish a large piece of work exploring uh, this question. The short point is that we think that the period of low nominal rates and negative real interest rates that has prevailed since the global financial crisis was an anomaly. Real interest rates are going to be higher over the coming years. Indeed, the equilibrium real rate already is higher, and we think it will rise further. Now, we'll go into more detail in all of this in a forthcoming report, but potentially we think we could get to a world where equilibrium real interest rates could be as high as 2% by the end of this decade. And of course, that has massive implications across a whole range of asset classes, whether it's real estate, whether you're a bond investor, whether you're an equity investor. The shift from negative real interest rates to to positive real interest rates and then the push up in those positive real interest rates 
is going to have massive implications. Like I say, we'll get into all of that in more detail in a forthcoming report, but really this is one of the big issues uh, that's going to affect all investors over the, the coming years. That was Neil Searing on inflation, monetary policy making and the market response. I'll post our central bank responses and our analysis on where yields are heading on the podcast page. Also, that drop-in session on central banks, that that short-form client briefing, uh, I'll link to that too on the podcast page. We hold several of these short sessions each week on a wide range of topics. Uh, This coming week, for example, we're doing drop-ins on the Bank of Japan, on UK climate policy, and our US commercial real estate forecast. So look out for those on our events page. That work that Neil mentioned on Our Star, all about where interest rates are going over the long term, that's coming in October. There's loads of surprising and quite striking conclusions about the macro market implications coming out of that analysis, so you'll want to watch out for that. But ahead of that, we're releasing a major report on Tuesday, that's September 26th, all about artificial intelligence. Each year, the Economist team at Capital Economics steps back from the day-to-day of PMI, central bank meetings, to focus on what they think will be a major driver of global economic and market outcomes over the coming years. These are our spotlight projects. They're in-depth reports, events, and a steady stream of subsequent analysis across all our coverage areas. In the past, we've looked at things like the end of EM outperformance, uh, what follows the most recent age of globalization. Last year was all about the fracturing of the US-China relationship, and we're continuing to follow all of these very closely. These are big picture issues, the kind that shift the tectonic plates of the global economy, and AI belongs among them, as we'll demonstrate in our upcoming work. This isn't just techno-hype or hysteria. The development and adoption of AI will lead to substantial and lasting change for much of the global economy, and that's going to have broad implications for financial markets too. At the heart of our view on AI is the idea that this is a technology which is going to have a profound impact on productivity across a swathe of economies. To understand the how and why, I spoke to Paul Ashworth. He's our chief North America economist and is one of the authors of our AI report. I started by asking him why it's only now, after decades of grasping and imagining, that artificial intelligence is fundamentally altering our view of the economic outlook. Well, I think for a long time, the reality fell short of the hype as it were. We had as far back as the mid-1990s, the deep blue supercomputer beating the then world chess champion Gary Kasparov. Even as recently as 2016, we had AlphaGo from Google's DeepMind finally being able to beat the professional player of the game of Go, which is more complicated because it has more possible moves than chess. Uh, and then obviously brings AI into the spotlight. As I said, for a long time, the reality just wasn't keeping up with what people thought this could do. But because of the exponential growth in terms of processing power, in terms of data, in terms of the capacity to store data digitally, you know, the exponential growth initially is deceptive and doesn't look very, very powerful, but certainly from what was impossible, you quickly go from things being not just possible, but even becoming mundane. We've had something like that happening with large language models over the last 12 months, in particular with the release of OpenAI's chat GPT 3.5 and 4.0. In particular, only as recently as 2017, a Google company actually suggested a different way of running an algorithm to estimate the parameters within those large language models, which OpenAI took and ran with. 
and that transformer architecture has proved to be the key needed to estimate much bigger large language models. So we have ChatGPT 3.5 with 175 billion parameters, ChatGPT 4 with 500 billion parameters, if not more than that. So a very rapid scaling up of the size of these models, and also the amount of data they're trained on. And something unexpected has happened with that increase in size. Which of these models have suddenly been able to develop a whole host of new skills in terms of text? We have the ability to write poetry, write computer code, marketing copy, all these sorts of things you can be utilizing to workflows across different sectors in the economy to produce pretty strong, we think, at least productivity gains. So from from hope to reality, but but then to hype, there's already been a backlash against some of the hype around what we've been seeing, but how do we separate out the, the hype from the reality of all this? Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, new technologies are always subject to hype. There's something called the glut and the hype circle, which actually tries to characterize the different stages of new technologies. Initially, there's a technology trigger, then you have a maximum level of inflated expectations. Um, I'm not sure where to quote with. So at that point, with AI at the moment, we'll probably reach out over the next couple of years. Then people tend to get a little disillusioned with the technology when it can't do exactly what you want it to do immediately. And then eventually we just put in place the architecture needed, the correct funding needed, and just the time needed to develop these technologies, integrate those into workflows. So, of course, the dot com double is perhaps the best example of this. An awful lot of hype in the late 90s surrounding the internet, which obviously during the early 2000s, we saw the death of a lot of those uh, child companies around that time, like Pets.com. But eventually we reached a point where, you know, although Pets.com was completely unprofitable selling pet food online in the late 90s and early 2000s, now it's just a regular thing that Amazon does. So AI is going to come under an inevitable bootcash of the AI in the next couple of years. I don't think that necessarily means that it won't still have a put on the economy in terms of boosting productivity across a wide range of sectors. I mean, as it stands right now, there are still drawbacks to isolation in large models. They suffer hallucinations, which means they tend to make things up. They can inherit the biases that are in their training data. And then, of course, they can be used for things like fraud and by authoritarian governments to control their own citizens. Um, but in general, I think we're in for some extended period of productivity gains off the back of these models. I want to pick up, if I can, on this word transformative that, that you just mentioned, because all of our analysis on this topic, it seems, hinges on this idea that AI is, is a general purpose technology, a GPT. Talk us through what a, a GPT is how it applies here and what, why that's so important in terms of thinking about this on a macroeconomic level. So what economists think of GPTs, they're not very thinking of chat GPT, they're thinking, as you say, of general purpose technologies. Historical examples of that would include things like steam power, electricity, the internet, desktop computers. And those are technologies that um, enabled productivity gains across the economy, or at least broad swathes of the economy. In some cases, it took some considerable time for those productivity gains to come through. But also technologies that tend to enable other inventions and innovations. So if we think of steam power, you know, the first steam engines were invented in the mid-18th century. 
but it wasn't until the late 19th century that we actually saw national railways in both the US and on the UK. The same with electricity, you know, it took a while. Then we had all sorts of accompanying innovations like refrigeration, which benefited the economy and society in general. As I said, with desktop computers and the internet too, we did have a strong burst of productivity growth as those technologies were incorporated into the workplace. And then so, you know, we think AI enjoys many of the similar characteristics of any general purpose technology and that we'd expect it to provide a boost to many different sectors in the economy. Um, possibly more services sectors than manufacturing, given the recent advances for mostly in text-based large language models. But I think there will at least be some benefit within manufacturing. And of course, developments like machine learning and AI are also making possible things like autonomous vehicles, which although, you know, we've been talking about those for 10 years, are getting much closer to being deployed on a large scale, and those, of course, will hopefully revolutionise the transportation sector. You've just touched on there a little bit about the areas of the economy that AI is going to touch, and, and, and obviously there are disruptions involved in there, and the Spotlight Project has much more to say about the impact on things like, like labour markets and, and how governments respond. But talk a little bit, if you would, about, about where we go from here. You've mentioned autonomous vehicles, for example, but what are the sort of the known knowns in terms of AI development in, in the coming years that we can look forward to? Well, right now we have the development of large language models, uh, which has been the big push over the last 12, 24 months. Those have been developed by some of the largest tech behemoths, so Microsoft and OpenAI, Google, Meta, etc. But at the moment, those are pretty much standalone technologies. What we'd expect to see is, first of all, those technologies being incorporated into other applications and our whole ecosystem being built up around them via probably startups as much as more development by the big firms. But also, we'd expect the costs of training these models to fall very, very sharply. You know, we know the cost of computers coming down very rapidly, just as it has done continuously for the last 30 or 40 years and then more long. We know that the models themselves will become more powerful as people tweak and improve the algorithms used to train the data. And of course, we know that more data is becoming available all the time too in the digital world. So all of those suggest that we're looking at a big improvement in terms of costs coming down for training these models, which means developing the models won't just be something that the biggest tech companies will be able to do, but hopefully within the next few years, it's something that Mid-sellers and then smaller companies can think about doing themselves. And then they can benefit by tweaking these models and making them best suited for their own business needs. So those who I expect to see a whole ecosystem filling out around large language models. When suddenly we talked about autonomous vehicles, the progress there has been in some ways a bit disappointing, but we are getting there very, very slowly. Tesla, for instance, just rolled out its full self-driving beta to 400,000 vehicles in North America. We have drone delivery in terms of companies like Zipline and Wynn now in trials in various cities in the US. And even in the UK, we have companies like Starship also developing their own drone delivery systems in terms of autonomous vehicles. So although it hasn't really broken through to the mainstream, I think autonomous vehicles is something that we will see over the next 10 years going from being a rare sighting public to almost canola. 
That was Paul Ashworth on what's coming in artificial intelligence and how it's going to change the global economy. Look out for our Spotlight Report on Tuesday and the associated in-person and virtual events in the coming weeks, starting with Asia this week. The report has much more on productivity. It talks about AI's impact on labor markets, how governments should respond. It delves into the role of US-China economic fracturing and the global AI race. And it also explores whether we're seeing another bubble form in stock markets around the hype. At the same time as releasing the report, we'll be rolling out our new AI Economic Impact Index, which shows how the world's major developed and emerging economies are leading in terms of developing AI technologies, but also how they are different using and adapting to it. We'll have Paul's co-authors on this podcast in the coming weeks to talk through their findings, so listen out for those. Subscribe if you haven't yet to get the latest episodes as they're released. But that's all for now. All of our insight on AI and much more can be found on our website, capitaleconomics.com. For access to all our insight, data, events, and much more, check out CE Advance. That's our premium platform. But until next time, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.